What a law is, is something that is follows, is entailed by the best, the optimal description of your universe. The optimal description is the one that best combines simplicity and informativeness and some other virtues that physicists like over the whole history of the, in describing the history of the whole uh, configuration. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to uh, Robinson's podcast number 83. And this episode is with Barry Lower, who's Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Rutgers. And the reason that I'm laughing is I can see on the image there's just uh, like a tail wagging around my chest, which is Pins, the cat, the podcat. And Barry and I, before we started our recording, were bonding over cats. He's a, a big cat person and just lost an important cat in his life. Uh, as did I recently, so that was nice to talk to him about. But anyway, back to the philosophical material at hand. Uh, before coming to Rutgers, or going to Rutgers, I guess, since I'm here at Stanford, Barry did his PhD in philosophy at Stanford with Yako Hintika, who's a towering figure in logic, and Barry did his work in modal logic, I think, with Yako, and he was also doing math logic at the time, but since then, uh, more important to the conversation, though we actually, we do get into a lot of this stuff. Barry works largely in the philosophy of physics, the philosophy of science, uh, metaphysics, there's probability in there as well. And quite relevant to the discussion today, he's also a good friend, perhaps a, a best friend and frequent collaborator with another denizen of the Robinsons podcast universe, uh, David Albert. And you might want to check out Barry's book on David. It's called, uh, quite uh, naturally, Essays on David Albert's uh, Time and Chance. And it's their joint work on the mentaculus, which is something approximating a, a probability map of the universe, as you'll hear uh, from Barry, this comes from the movie A Serious Man, but that it this occupies a lot of our our discussion today, or well, not today. We talked a few days ago, but in this episode, uh, and Barry and David are our best friends, so hopefully we'll see a, a collision of their probability map of the universe with uh, the Robinsons podcast multiverse at some point. But there was actually also just a big conference at. Johns Hopkins, organized by Janan Ishmael, on the next topic that we cover in this podcast, which is Barry's upcoming book, uh, What Breathes Fire into the Equations, which is going to be published by Oxford and should be released uh, this fall or early next year. And What Breathes Fire into the Equations is about laws chance, a fundamental ontology. And we also talk about statistical mechanics and a lot about probability. But that goes back to the mentaculus. So some background that I think might be important or worth thinking a bit about, or at least discussing briefly in this introduction, that we don't talk much about on the episode, but that we take a bit for granted. One is counterfactual statements. 
which are statements about roughly statements about what might have been. So if I hadn't eaten, I would have been sad. And counterfactuals have important metaphysical dimensions that are really important for analyses of causation, for instance. But there's also epistemic questions about in how we might have knowledge of possibilities. But it's more the the metaphysical issues that are relevant to this conversation. And there's a great article on the Stanford Encyclopedia about this, about counterfactuals by W. Starr that you you might also want to check out. Now, another aspect of the conversation, we talk a lot about statistical mechanics, but I think a lot gets taken for granted. And I'm certainly not an expert on st- statistical mechanics at all. But there's another link to an SEP article by Roman Frigg and Charlotte Charlotte Verndel in the uh, description. But in case you don't check it out, I think it's worth me quoting just a few sentences from the top in case you don't look. So statistical mechanics is the third pillar of modern physics next to quantum theory and relativity theory. And its aim is to account for the macroscopic behavior of physical systems in terms of dynamical laws governing the microscopic constituents of these systems and probabilistic assumptions. So I certainly could not have just uh, pulled that out of my hat. So I'm glad that I had that to read. Now, some final remarks. I always have to mention that reviews, comments, likes, subscribes, these are all endlessly appreciated. And I would be so grateful if you could leave or do any of those things. And then I also have this other channel on Twitch and YouTube, Robinson Eats, where I eat a pint of ice cream or something every morning. And I'm happy to talk with whoever shows up. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Barry. Barry, as we were just saying, you're a, a Stanford guy yourself. And if I'm correct, you received your PhD in 75 working on modal logic with Yako Hintika. At the, were you pronouncing it differently? I saw you. No, you pronounced it correctly. Yako. Oh, great. Yako. 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 Right. So, the, the, I mean, the, the very famous, renowned. Finnish logician. But since then, I know you've worked in many, many different areas. But how was it that uh, mathematical logic, which you mentioned was how you got into modal logic, how did that end up turning into then the philosophy of physics and quantum theory? It's a little bit of a story, but I'll try to keep it short. So I went to Stanford with the idea that I would, you know, all these results in foundations of set theory were fairly new when I mm. went, plus in other parts of model theory. And so I went to do that, and Stanford was the place to be in the late 1960s. Paul Cohn was there, Harvey right. Friedman was there. In fact, I was Harvey Friedman's first TA. Oh, wow. This is a good story. Yeah. And so uh, when I went to go TA for Harvey's class, I, I guess uh, he was no older than I was, probably. And um, because I had some background in mathematical logic, 
I was given the job to TA. It was a class for mostly philosophy students who wanted to catch up on mathematical logic before they took Solomon Pfefferman's class. I'm sure he's not around anymore, right? Pfefferman's probably died, right? Yeah, he passed away. Right. Okay, he was a great, great teacher, incidentally, unlike Harvey. Mm. Okay, and uh, so... And Harvey Friedman was there. Pfefferman was there. Kreisel was there. Paul Cohn was there. Yeah, some big names. Morley was there. I mean, you I mean, and then you, Berkeley right across the bed. And Berkeley was right there. I can tell you a nice story about that, but I don't want to take up too much time. So, okay, with these stories. So anyway, so so Harvey comes in the first day, and I know all the other students in the class, and I'm a graduate student with them. And I said, nothing to worry about here. Don't worry about it, because they were mostly people who wanted were going to do you know, write their dissertations on Plato or, or 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 on philosophy of language or something like that. And so um, uh, Friedman comes in and he writes on, says to the board that at the turn of the 20th century, uh, Hilbert wrote, I don't remember exactly, like a hundred of the most important problems to be solved in mathematics, but 10 Either they were the most important in mathematics or the most important in mathematical logic, I don't remember. And he wrote them on the board. And there were things like resolve what the status of the continuum hypothesis, uh, the consistency of, uh, of first and order higher order logics, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, so he had a big list of these problems. Then Friedman went through the list and he said, well, Girdle solved this one, check. Mm. Well, Tarski solved this one, check. Girdle solved this one, check. Kreisel says nobody's ever going to solve this one, <laughs> X. Uh, Girdle solved this one, X. There were three left, and Friedman turned to the class and said that he, Friedman, will solve those three, I, uh, remaining three. I wish I knew exactly what they were or wrote it down. I don't believe he did. Mm. It's isn't, a tall that a cool, order. isn't that a cool story it is yeah. it is how did that how did that though turn into the modal logic and then the philosophy well okay and i also took paul Cohn's set theory course and i realized i was just not the mathematician that yeah. you gotta be to do this kind of stuff mm -hmm. so i i would say very interested in modal logic anyway and the Kripke stuff was all the rage and i was taking a class yeah. with hintica and hintica was very keen on promoting his approach to how to think about modal and epistemic and related logics, as opposed to Kripke's. And Lewis was also there in the in the background. Uh, but Hintiger really got me on the project. Uh, this is a story you may want to cut out of your podcast. I, I'm not saying you should, I'm just saying. Yeah. Wait, but first, did he invent epistemic logic, Hintiger? Basically, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I probably won't cut it out unless you want me to. Let's see what it is. Well, let's see, let's see what it is, okay. Well, Iaco is dead now, and I got along with him pretty well. But he basically ruined my life at Stanford. Huh. Because he his project, he wanted me to, to write a dissertation comparing his and Kripke's approaches, demonstrating why his approach was superior. <laughs> and unfortunately for me, I came to sort of the opposite conclusion. That's so a rough spot. So it was a, it was a horrible thing. And then he left uh, 
So I got a job at the University of South Carolina after that. I, at first, I thought, gee, I thought I would do something better than this, but it turned out to be very fortunate for me because I met the two most important philosophical influences in my life there. And uh, what? I know one of them. One of them is David, of course. Yeah, David Albert. And the other one you probably never heard of, so I'll mention him right away. He stopped being a philosopher and became a mathematician, but he's one of the most contrib important contributors to Bayesian decision theory there is. His name is Roger Rosencrantz. Are you interested in that stuff? The Foundation of Statistics. Yeah, I, I would like to learn more about it. I'd love to do some podcasts on foundations and probability, that sort of thing. Uh, but I haven't studied any of it myself. I know that, I mean, Haim and I were just talking about it yesterday, about um, Pascal and the whole history of probability, but I don't, I've never studied it. Well, I'm back being intensely involved in understanding probability now from a somewhat different point of view, but I've always been very interested in foundations of statistics and wrote a few papers with Roger. Uh, Are foundations of statistics book. and foundations of probability the same thing? No. No, okay. Of course, they're interrelated, but yeah. no, and the people who work on them uh, often have screwy views about what's going on in the other place. It, when I was working, the, the big names, of course, Carnap was in the background about probability, but in statistics, well, what to say? Well, of course, Patrick Soupies, who I should mention here, I actually went to Stanford thinking I would work with Soupy. Okay, there's another good story. I thought I'd work with Soupies because I had an, I went to undergraduate school at Amherst and I had a teacher there who was a co-classmate co at, at Columbia, actually, with uh, Soupies. So he sent me to, to Stanford and the smarter guy to Harvard in our class. Uh, I won't tell you who the smarter guy was. I think I turned up better. But <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, so I went to Soupy's. I walked into Soupy's office right after I just got, I got married at age 20, drove across the country, landed there. I knew I had to go see Soupy's before we even unpacked. This went to the apartment and eight seed barns still exist. The student housing still exists. There's student housing. I don't know the undergraduate the dorms. barns. These, these are not undergraduate, these are graduate dorms. They were, this was called barns. It was, uh, I, I, well, it's not important, but anyway, okay. they just dumped this stuff. I ran into see Soupies, and he said, okay, sit down lower. What are you working on? And I looked at him like, what am I working on? I just drove across country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just got married. What? He scared the living daylights out of me. Turns out he was so wonderful human being and a very good person and a good teacher, but I didn't end up working with him. But I learned a lot about probability, and I still think he doesn't do philosophy the way I want to do philosophy, I think. But I, I hope I uh, absorbed an ingredient from him. He was a very important figure, and I, I hope he's not being forgotten in the, in, in the philosophy of science. He was very influential, and he did enormously important work. So he was very important in foundations of statistics. And particularly its application elsewhere, like in psychology and in sociology and biology and so on. But the other people were Isaac Levi, a Columbia person. I won't say anything more. Henry Kyberg, I had to write my undergraduate thesis about him. 
I'm not going to say anything more. Uh, and after that, R Roger played an important role. And there are other people I could mention, but that's not our subject. But it hasn't been such a thriving area again until re recently. There's a person, Deborah Mayo, who does interesting stuff. But it's kind of what happened was uh, sort of Bayesian thinking took over, rightly so. That was the way Supis thought about things. And I do think the Bayesian approach has the core of the right way of thinking about things. But um, it's fallen out of centrality to a large extent, not entirely, but to a large extent in, in the philosophy journals where it, it shouldn't have. Is, I don't think anybody at Stanford does it now. Is that right? Probability? Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I don't think anybody... There are some people doing decision theory, but I don't think anybody's really doing much probability. Yeah, and of course, decision theory has applications in game theory and in ethics and so on, and so it's the interest of philosophy. Of course, the dominating figure in philosophy, for my money, was not somebody I studied with. Somebody I got to know a bit, but not nearly well enough. More stories, maybe for another podcast. I'm not going to make this an anecdote hour. It was David Lewis. For me, David Lewis is the great figure of 20th century philosophy. Yeah. I'm actually talking tomorrow with uh, Graham Priest and Frank Jackson just about David Lewis's philosophy. So that'll be really fun. But you and I are going to get there. At South Carolina, you met David and you met Rosencrantz. And these were two right. really important figures for you. I'm guessing David played a big role in your getting into the philosophy of physics. So I was always interested in philosophy of physics. What happened was, at that point, I'd been at South Carolina about six or seven years. I'd gotten tenure already. It was a very, very toxic department in many ways. Again, not for today, but I have stories that will drive anybody just like, could you believe that any place could be like that? You know, with suicides, murders, and other things. Okay, that's just to whet your appetite, okay? It's wedded. Okay. But uh, anyhow, um, so I was sitting in on a, a graduate course in quantum mechanics. I did take a course or sit in on a course at Stanford, taught by a legendary figure at Stanford. He's so legendary, I can't remember his name right now, but it might have been Schiff, if that means a bell for you. But he has a famous textbook in quantum mechanics. I'm sure he's long departed the earth. Um, and it was very interesting, but it was taught for physicists, and I was interested in foundations. There was a person at South Carolina, a, 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 a towering figure in 20th century physics. What he was doing at South Carolina beats me. He's still alive. His name is Yakir Aharonov. You ever heard of the name? I don't think so. You should know it should be up there with Heisenberg and Schrodinger. Uh, of course, in the contemporary form. Okay. Yeah, maybe maybe it's just I've I've read it and never heard it pronounced, but it doesn't. There's something called the Aharonov-Bohm effect that's often discussed. Okay. Okay, and he's one of those people who he has his own way of wanting to understand quantum mechanics, but he is one of those who understood what Bohm was doing. Okay. The other important figure again I met, but I didn't study it all with but it's very important to Tim Maudlin, as I'm sure came up, is John Bell. Yep, definitely. I say in the 20th century, for the foundations, it's Bell, Aronoff, 
followed by David and Tim. So I got interested in foundation physics. So I sat, was sitting in on Yakir's a course in in uh, foundational quantum mechanics, and it was supposed to be there to teach the graduate students physics, but it ended up being our discussions between me and him. And I was pretty ignorant at the time. I, I still am, but I was more, even more ignorant then. And um, uh, a lot of the discussion probably was a total waste for these students. So David Albert at that time was writing papers with Yakia. He was a pure physicist. I don't know if David told you the story or not, but he was physicist in Tel Aviv, but he was coming to South Carolina to work with Yakir. And so Yakir palmed him off on me. David had very little background in formal philosophy, though he's a very, very widely read person. You want to talk about Dante or the Aeneid? You can talk to David. Okay. So, um, uh, so he and I, I remember this vividly. We went on a a, a a car trip to Charleston, South Carolina, a very lovely town to visit, not to live in, but to live in. Uh, not to live in, but to visit. And uh, he was explaining to me along the way Everett's Many Worlds interpretation. I don't know if we want to get into that at all. Or not. I, I, I think there are big problems with it. Uh, and we cooked up a really crazy, a really sort of, what to say, spoof, mockery of the Everett account that we called the Many Minds. Many Minds, yeah. Which we then, I sent it to Yako, and he published it right away. And he published all my papers, so he was nice to me about that while he was still editing Synthes. So he might so, have ruined your life at Stanford, but not afterward. Right. Well, I don't know. This paper might have ruined my life. Because we didn't write in it, this is supposed to be making fun of many worlds interpretation. So many people took it seriously and thought we were proposing an alternative interpretation of quantum mechanics. Because we didn't say explicitly that if you followed out what the many worlds uh, approach wanted to do, this is where you would end up. Now, that's not exactly right. There are other places you can end up with, and important things, developments hadn't been on the, the table yet, like what's called decoherence. Uh, but the major issues are there, and we dealt with them with this many minds approach. And so we start, we wrote a few papers together. And we became very close friends. And I think I played a, uh, you know, a somewhat reasonable role in David becoming a philosopher, actually, hmm. and, and going to. I don't think I. I think he he, he got his job at Columbia because he's an enormously talented person. And lucky for me, I, I feel like I'm the person who ended up being at the right spot at the right time. I, I, I may be misusing this, but the Woody Allen movie pops to mind where Woody Allen ends up showing up at all these important historical events. Do you know what I mean? I haven't seen this movie. Okay. Well, anyway, so because as soon as I got to Rutgers. Wait, I'm thinking of that sort of happens at like midnight in, in midnight in Paris with Owen Wilson. But maybe maybe. I, I don't have a good memory, but at any rate, um, uh, uh, as, so here I was, I leave, I'm at South Carolina. I then actually got the possibility of moving out of South Carolina, which I really wanted to do, to go join Rosencrantz. He became chair at Virginia Tech. But around the same time, I, I'd also become friends with another person 
who you might want to podcast, very interesting, especially for stories about philosophy, is Ernie Lepore. I'm talking to him next Friday. Oh, really? (laughs) So at that time, before David, I would say Ernie was my closest friend. He's an amazing character in this field. When when the history of philosophy is written, he will be the the character of the, the time. That's such a coincidence. How did that happen? How did that happen? Um, you're talking to him next Friday. Yeah, wow. I I spoke with Liz Camp a few months ago, uh-huh. and I really enjoyed our conversation. And we talked a fair bit about Emily Dickinson, and then a course she taught uh-huh. with Ernie and Joyce Carol Oates on philosophy and literature. And I just enjoyed that conversation so much and talking about the philosophy of literature that I wanted to talk with Ernie about language and literature. Ernie's a really interesting guy. Uh, there's such, I think the word is synchronicity in this conversation we're having. I'm about to fall off my chair. <laughs> uh, so Emily Dickinson is my poet hero. Oh, I went to Hammers that I spent most of my spare time when I wasn't doing things I shouldn't do. Sitting by her graveside, reading, oh my, wow, doing my schoolwork and stuff like that. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. And I know a my lot poet of is folks Stephen Crane. I, well, I like Stephen Crane too, but I don't know him the same way as I know him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so you, you must have spent a lot of your time at Brooklyn Bridge. Then. <laughs> no, I didn't actually. <laughs> but okay, I feel like we should get to fire in the equations um but unless you had more that you wanted to say about getting well i I do just very quickly so er so i ernie and i became very good friends he got me more interested in philosophy of language and davidson and we did some things together about it i was very interested and i'm still interested then because of that we he and i spent a summer together with jerry Fodor, who's another one of the great towering figures of 20th century yeah you've met a lot of people I, I, I mean, I, when I think about my life in this way, you were in the right place. I was in the right places at the right times, mm-hmm. and I, I was a very, very shy ninth grader. Like you wouldn't believe, I, I wouldn't like. I was scared of my shadow. That I would get to know these people is just unbelievable to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, when I look back at it, but much else about it was just scratching the surface. So. So Fodor ran a summer institute in Seattle on foundations of cognitive science and particularly the issue, which really is, I think, one of the most important issues in philosophy that I worked on for a while, but I gave up on. But now I have some hope that maybe some things I'm interested in lately might provide something like a way in. That's the problem of what Jerry called psychosemantics. In virtue of what does a representation have the content it has? What makes it the case that something in the mind or in the mouth refer to what it does? Yeah. Because you can tell some causal story that's sort of that's part of it, but it ain't gonna doesn't go the whole way. There's a teleological story that people have made up that doesn't go the whole way. Okay. So I don't know if you've read anything that I wrote, but there's a paper called Naturalizing. Semantic guide to naturalizing semantics. It's not very original, but it surveys the state of the situation about 25 years ago. Hmm. And when I thought this problem is just going to be the hardest problem there is in philosophy, 
I don't believe very much progress has been done on it, but I haven't been really on top of it. I mean, it's one of my intentions is to go back and look at it this summer. Mm. Is that at Stanford? Is that in the air at Stanford at all? No. I would okay. say no. I don't. So, you know, uh, David Lewis has an approach to, we'll come to that, because firing the questions connected to it, involving what he calls reference magnetism. Is that a term you know? Um, it is not. You know, they're educating people at Stanford like they ought to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't tell them that. <laughs> but, well, the, the first thing, though, so firing the equations, as I t t take it, it's about laws, chances, fundamental ontology. But the first thing I wanted to discuss, well, one, you said it's you think it's coming out. Uh, well, it's going to be published by Oxford, but you think it's going to be right. coming out towards the end of this year or maybe the beginning of next? It's probably the beginning of next year now because okay. I'm still tinkering, right? And just quite briefly, before we get into the details, though maybe this question will actually necessitate getting into the details, but what does the title refer to? And granted, we've just, we've just discussed some problems with reference. That's, uh, a great, but... that's a great question. So there's a famous quote from Stephen Hawking. Okay. And he, he says, he asks, what breathes fire into the equations and gives them a world to govern? I like that. Yeah. Okay. So originally the title was going to be what breathes fire into the equations. But then a friend of mine, person you're probably going to interview also, Louise Anthony. Uh, I haven't sent an invitation yet, but she's, maybe. she's a very, she's a, she's a live wire and, and really important figure in philosophy of mind and, and feminist okay. philosophy. Okay. Okay, great. Okay. Adding that to my list. Okay. Okay. And uh, so she suggested just fire in the equations, and I think she might be right. But we'll see. I have a grandson who's going to do the drawing for the, the uh, cover. Uh, I think they'll let me do it. He already did sketches of it. It's a dragon... Breathing equations in flames. So it's, it's a very nice picture. <laughs> Sounds fitting too. I like it. Okay. So anyway, so that's what it refers to. It probably has no bearing at all to what Hawking had in mind. Mm -hmm. I really don't know what Hawking had in mind. I wasn't, I did see Hawking once. I was in his presence. I guarantee you he had no idea that I was in his presence, not only because he probably, he was all hooked up and stuff like that, but there was there was a, a number of other people around us at a conference in we're in Canary Islands, I think, a long mm. time ago. Anyway, so okay, so when I started talking to David, we got interested in foundations of quantum mechanics. I had previously been interested in the nature of laws and particularly counterfactuals. I had written some papers about counterfactuals before there, mostly from my logic. Uh, modal logic background about the, the the logic of counterfactuals, where I, I thought I showed something sort of interesting. I made a sort of bridge between Nelson Goodman's way of thinking about counterfactuals and David Lewis's way of thinking about counterfactuals. Uh, it wasn't deep, but it was just a logic level. And, but I was thinking about what makes counterfactuals true or false, if they are true or false. And that's been an important question, which now has branched out all over the place. The way it's being treated in philosophy of language, incidentally, 
is very, very different from the way I want to treat it. And David Lewis himself, I think, was driven often, not just in this case. You know, David Lewis, of course, is the great figure of counterfactuals in the 20th century. After Goodman started the ball rolling and then Lewis wrote this great paper. It's one of the the great papers of the 20th century. I think it's called Counterfactuals in the Arrows of Time. So great, I can't remember the title exactly, but. So Lewis's paper is his uh, volume two of his collected papers is a very, very important paper because he tries to lay down what ordinary facts make counterfactuals right or wrong or true or false. He thinks they are true or false in part because he thinks he can build a kind of causation and a kind of decision, rational decision-making and so on out of counterfactuals. So when I first met David Albert, there are a lot of Davids in this story. When I first met David Albert, David Albert had no idea who David Lewis was. I started telling him a lot about because I had recently discovered David Lewis and thought I'd basically found Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, he got very interested in it. And I realized that we could make certain interesting connections about stuff that we got interested in together with that. Now, I don't know if you want to hear the whole story, but I wrote a few papers about counterfactuals. David Albert was very interested in the foundations of statistical mechanics. And and this should be the most part of our interview. Statistical mechanics is a goldmine for philosophers. They haven't scratched the surface. How could it be that some guys in, in England and France in a competition to who builds the better steam engine, it end up in the depths of profundity in philosophy. That's the real story to tell. Are you talking about Gibbs, Boltzmann, and Maxwell, or who? No, I was just I was referring to to, Far- to Faraday okay. and Carnot. But yes, okay. uh, those those you just mentioned two great physicists, right? I thought, out- I thought that they were the ones who developed statistical mechanics. I was they, they did, but okay. but it started with people trying to build better steam engines and figure out how far you could go with steam engines. Okay, I, 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 I'm, so, I'm sorry, I won't be so elliptical about, about this. So, um, uh, uh, so, so Maxwell and Boltzmann laid a, a probabilistic theory to connect up the macroscopic world with the microscopic world of Newtonian mechanics, assuming that what the world is made up out of is something like atoms or particles. Mm -hmm. That was not so widely accepted at the time. I think Boltzmann definitely accepted it. I think Maxwell did at times. He also thought there were fields, uh, uh, probably, but I'm not a historian. um, uh, The the woman I mentioned, Jessica at Stanford, is a good person to go to find out about the history of that. Jessica Riskin? Uh, Yeah, at time. Um, she's taught in my summer schools incidentally mm. uh, and I'm very good friends with her mother who was a uh, former Rutgers right. person so um, so what did they have they had a, a theory which says that there's a probability distribution over all the ways particles could be laid out in space and time okay and some laws which say how those particles evolve over time. 
And from that, you could actually derive that if you dropped it, well, when I say derive, I don't mean really a formal derivation, but you can you can make yourself feel as though you, if you worked at it for another thousand years, you could derive uh, that uh, if you dropped an ice cube in a pail of warm water in a, in a relatively isolated room, it would be melted in 20 minutes or something like that, depending on the size of the ice cube, temperature of the water and so on. You can and actually adjust those values to those values. So this was fantastic. And then when you think about it, you realize everything that happens in the world is that kind of a thermodynamic change. Like when your cat wakes up from her nap, that's a thermodynamic change. Mm -hmm. And so this theory should cover that. Now, no one is ever literally going to connect the thermodynamic quantities with your cat being awake or asleep. But when she's awake or asleep, her temperatures changes and different parts of her body is changing. And so the pressure on her skin changes and so on. So there's something like a connection between the macroscopic world and the microscopic world built into the way statistical mechanics was pursued. Mm-hmm. However, there were two big problems with statistical mechanics. Okay. One Boltzmann was clearly aware of, and maybe did you get into this with David? Albert? No, we didn't. We haven't talked about statistical mechanics at all. Maybe you should do a thing with me and him, actually, if you if you find this interesting. Only. Yeah, I do. I okay. definitely want yeah. to on okay. the Mentaculus. Okay, but that's what the Mentaculus is. is right, it? right. Okay. The foundations of statistical So, okay. So David wrote a book, and he by that time, he and I were very good friends. We were in constant correspondence, and I was at Cornell for that year when he was writing the book, and we were in constant conversation. And I realized as he's writing the book, that he was presenting a way of formulating statistical mechanics. It didn't do much more than take what Boltzmann had written down on the page, but put it in a very nice compact form and make the connections and realize you get out of it an account of the arrows of time, an account of why you can influence the future, but not the past, an account of why we know so much more about the past than about the future, an account of causation, an account of factuals. Now, I'm just telling you this. I'm not demonstrating it right now. Mm-hmm. What the mentaculus is saying what that nice, cool account is, I can I can tell you what it is very quickly. And what it is, in a certain way, is it written on the shirt. It's a probability map of the universe. We'll come to the movie that's from, if you want to, in a minute. Okay. Um, okay. It just consists of three axioms. That's it. One axiom specifies what the fundamental ontology of the universe is, whether it's a quantum mechanical wave function, together with particles or fields or whatever, what its space-time arena is. Maybe it's some very high-dimensional space. Maybe it's a non-Euclidean space of some sort. Nobody knows how to really finish this now. That's why what the project in quantum gravity is supposed to be. It's just a phrase. This is, this is the fundamental. Yeah. Then the part that's being contributed here are two ingredients. One is a probability distribution over all the possible configurations that the ontology in this framework can be in. The other ingredient can you claim. say more about what what it means for there to be a probability dis- distribution over this fundamental ontology? Not only can I, that's where we're going. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. 
So one problem, that was one thing that was missing. You need to make real explicit. Boltzmann kind of added that in. Unfortunately, he didn't really say more about what it means to be a probability distribution. We'll get there in a second. The other ingredient is super, super important. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of David Albert's most important contributions. He made many to philosophy. It's that there is enormous philosophical import of a claim about the way the universe was at one particular time. At one particular time, a certain quantity called entropy of the universe was very, 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 very tiny. This was already known. Roger Penrose actually calculated its value in his book of his called The Emperor's New Mind. But David puts this as a, as a claim about the universe, something like a law about the universe. At what time is this? Well, it's the time that we now call the past. But we're not claiming that this was at a time in the past. We're now claiming that this was at a time, and then we will give arguments to show that this was the past because it has all the earmarks that things in that direction is in the past. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Good. I, I, this I really like students when I teach this stuff to get that point. That's a philosophically important point. Okay. Good. So, um, okay, that's it. That's the metaculus. You take that, you take any proposition at all, as long as it's made true or false by micro-fundamental, micro micro-physical conditions, like your cat being asleep, there'll be a probability distribution associated with the statement, your cat is asleep. There'll be a probability over the statement that your cat is asleep. Now, of course, most of these probabilities are completely uninteresting, period, because we're not interested in probabilities of bald statements like that. We're usually working with conditional probabilities, and they're conditional on enormous amount of information that we have. So we're interested in how likely is it that your cat will wake up in 15 minutes, given the macroscopic description of the, your room, your shirt, the, the rest of the earth, the weather, blah, 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 blah. Off, usually it's the case for a lot of things in our world, what's going on outside the room won't make a difference. So like for coins and coin flipping, what's going on outside the room within reason won't make any difference. Change the weather, the coin goes the same way. The well, it would the make same. the most minute possible difference, but it would... Minute. Wouldn't, we wouldn't care about it. It That's wouldn't right. change the probability distribution in any salient way. That's a correct, correct. That's a good okay. correction. That's right. Okay. okay. What is that? That is a probability map of the universe. You see why I'm saying that? Because yeah. now for any two propositions, A and B... This theory will spit out probability of B given A. So, you know, probability was an interesting idea that was introduced. I mean, it goes way back. There were games of chance in ancient Egypt and Greece. And I even read that Maimonides tried to figure out some things about the mathematics of probability. And Roger Bacon did later. And in, uh, then around 1668, I think that's the right year, uh, Pascal, the famous mathematician, I think was it's given up. But let's check because this is an important. No, date. I, th I, th I think you're right. <laughs> Nuts. My memory is 
I have a very visual memory. No, it's no, very no bad problem. Uh, or maybe it's 62. And well, he had an intense religious vision. But you keep going <laughs> on, on the night of 1664. Okay, let's get this straight. Okay. Anyhow, what happened was he, he was, a, he was a, a guy about town and he was friends with all the high flyers. And one of them was a, a nobleman who likes to gamble, but the king liked to take it to, to get his share of any gambling that went on. But they were doing gambling without the king. So the king's soldiers came, according to the story, and raided the game. So they had to stop the game. And the Chevalier de la Mer, that was his, what he's called, was uh, asked Pascal to figure out how they should divide up the, the same. So Pascal had to do some mathematics. To do 54. It. 64? 1654. We were both wrong. 54. Uh -huh. Interesting. Okay. I have to correct it every place, I think, especially in my brain. All right. So the notion of probability started being used. And at first, it was often thought that the realm of probability and the realm of law were different. But this was puzzled people because laws supposedly governed everything. Okay. And they're also supposed to come from God. Right. Okay. Okay. We'll come back to that maybe in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. 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 So, um, the, uh, uh, so the, so probably it was just restricted to gambling games, setting insurance policies, maybe trying to figure out how likely it is that a certain village, the next 10 people born would be girls or boys or things like that. Uh, uh, so they realized there was some sort of regularity involved in probability, but you couldn't say what's going to happen next, it seemed. And this puzzled a lot of people. By the time the 19th century rolled around, probability was in much wide, more widespread use in biology and elsewhere, and Maxwell and Boltzmann made use of it, but they tended to think of probability as just reflecting ignorance. We don't know exactly what the precise microphysical state of a system is, so we'll be ignorant just assign various degrees of belief, which they call probabilities. But that can't be the right way to think about probability, because these probabilities that they were introducing in statistical mechanics were giving explanations. We're in fundamental, we're in laws that they were right. Right. So it didn't seem to be that they could just be, it's not like any old Joe's ignorance. or beliefs. It's not subjective. Not subjective. Well, maybe there's an objective way about being ignorant. That is an idea that is around. And there may be still people who have that idea. I've been in a little bit of a email exchange with somebody who likes that idea recently. I mean, I think it's hopeless, but there have been smart people who pursued it. It's sometimes under the name of the principle of indifference, though there are fancier uh, names for it. Uh, and actually, there's a guy just coming to teach at Berkeley, since he's a former student of mine in part, next year. So maybe you'll meet him named Ezra Rubenstein. Hmm. So he'll be there. No, sorry, he's there right now at this moment. Uh, so his... Uh, his girlfriend will be joining him in Berkeley. They're both great philosophers. Oh, awesome. uh, they'll be at Berkeley next year. Um, so he has not the ignorance interpretation, but another way of resuscitating 
something like this idea, but I don't want to tar it. It's much more sophisticated, but I do want to advertise him. Okay, so so they, they just, but they got on. A great thing about physicists is they can do their physics work, make their experiments, do their results, come up with theories, think of further research, build rocket ships, and not know the first thing about what they're talking about. That's why they pay philosophers such high salaries. Well, mm-hmm. because they might say the same thing in reverse. Same thing with mathematics. Same with mathematics. Uh, nobody knows what they're talking about. Uh, maybe Heim does. I, I don't. Maybe. I don't know what his views are. He thinks that, he does. I don't know that. I'm. Uh, let's on our own time. On not on. Sure. Let's talk about that. Uh, I should. I should know him then. I'd like to know what the answer to that is. Okay. So, uh, but they get on with it. So the notion of law has been introduced, it used in physics, mathematical laws, at least since Galileo and Descartes and especially Newton. In fact, Descartes wrote a whole book sort of laying out a program of saying, let's, us physicists, he thought of himself as a physicist and mathematician and philosopher. They weren't separated in those days like they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, all together, and he's thought, uh, well, what I should do is, what we should do is we should find a fundamental theory of the world, saying what the fundamental ontology of the world is, what the space-time arena of the world is, what the configurations of the ontology could be in, what the fundamental properties are, what quantities are, and what the laws are, which evolve these. Well, what are laws? Well, historians of philosophy have argued about this, and there's some very good papers. Uh, again, according to Jessica, who knows a little bit about this, it's not her particular area, but um, uh, as a person named Peter Harrison, who I think wrote a great paper, but other people too. And I'm sure that Michael Friedman has views about this too, because he's written on quantum laws. Uh, But these guys really thought of laws as coming right from God. In fact, Newton's uh, henchman, uh, Clark, says that laws are God's volitions. That's a quote taken out of Clark. So literally, in Descartes and, and Malbranche, you get the view that, and in Berkeley too, with a funny ontology, at Berkeley, you get the view that it's God who's pushing everything around, and laws are just the principles that describe how God moves things around. God, being a mathematician, you know, moves things around in a nice, simple, mathematical way, and also because he wanted smart people like Descartes and Newton to be able to discover them. That's my hypothesis. Of him. I'm not saying that's a historically accurate claim. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would probably deny it, but I would say it in, in, if I was in a comedy routine. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. But this isn't a good philosophical account about what laws are. Not to say that some philosophers haven't taken it seriously. There's a guy named John Foster, a very smart philosopher of language and other things. He wrote a whole book published in the 1970s, I think, called uh, something like Laws is God's Command or something like that. Uh, uh, And it's a very interesting book, but most people don't want to take this seriously. So how should we think of laws? 
Well, one idea is to say that, well, there's fundamental ontology, but in reality, there are also these things called laws over and above the fundamental ontology. That's called a non-Humean view. We'll get back to probability very soon. Uh, one way of being a non-Humean is the way that Tim Maudlin is. Yeah, He thinks that laws are just extra ingredients in the universe. They're not extra ingredients in the same in the case in the sense that you might trip over one someday. If you trip over, it might be a law that's at work, but you don't won't trip over the law. Yeah. Laws in some way are outside of space and time, but somehow making things happen. And they're in space somehow and time. primitive, as I recall. They're, they're you primitive. don't ask what they are. Well, you don't ask what they are in like an ontological sense. You don't get any deeper. They just are. Right. That's view. Uh, I, I can tell you this. Don't ask, he won't tell. <laughs> um, recently, he invited me to his class, for me and him to sort of spar around about this for two hours. It was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, okay, so, uh, and also I should mention, his books in philosophy of physics are the places to go if you want to find out what's going on in philosophy and physics. Is two books on space time and on quantum mechanics. Yeah, I've loved uh, talking with him. We've done one episode just me and him, and then one with him and David. But I'd really love to see him arguing with someone because he's very adamant about his positions. He is. I thought I would. He was very nice to me in this. Probably out of pity. I don't know, but he was. He was very nice. But we 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 argue. We've been going on. You know the. Th Three us with families and be going on vacations together for like 30 years. So this is a pretty old shoe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we've all benefited, but by me, by far the most. No doubt about that in my mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so those were the non-Humean accounts of laws. Okay. There's another way of being non-Humean. I'm not going to go into the details, but it's it sort of looks back to... Uh, uh, Aristotle's way of thinking about fundamental physics. Now, the laws are in the in the things. Each system has its law, which has which is its own tendency to do something, its own disposition, its own power to do something. That's been pursued in a modern dress too. There's also the view of giving up. Really. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm raising my hand. When you say each system has its own laws, do you mean like the special sciences, like biology has its own laws, a, a chemical system has its own laws, this sort of thing? Yes. Okay. And the philosopher who's in closer to your neighborhood was famous for putting forward a view in this neighborhood, though not because she's a metaphysician so much, is Nancy Cartwright. Yeah, well, I thought I, I saw you were writing about Nancy Cartwright in fire in the equations and she i guess tying this to the theological conception of laws because because she's like well we don't have god then we must not have laws something like yes. that that's how i've that i you know i you know tim Maudlin is scary uh-huh i didn't really know nancy card right and uh, maybe i saw it at conferences but uh, a year or two ago, I was gave some talks in San Diego, and I was sat next to her at dinner, and I was like shaking, shaking. <laughs> but she was like the nicest person in the universe, and she's very interesting. She's very nice, and I, 
suffer a lot from her reading. I'm not sure where she stands now, but her papers are very, very instructive and very mm-hmm. interesting to read. But I certainly totally reject her worldview. She rejects Descartes' car- way of doing fundamental physics. Descartes was after a theory of everything, the kind of thing Steven Weinberg made popular when he wrote that book, Dreams of Final Theory. That was Descartes' dream. That's not Nancy Cartwright's dream. Now, you don't have to be a non-Yumian to have that kind of a dream. Another person at San Diego, also sort of a former student of mine, who I saw you just interviewed the other day. Craig? Craig. Yeah. Uh, he was he wasn't my PhD student, but he was at Rutgers when I got there and he took a class from me and I was on his committee. Uh, so he is sort of a Yumian like me, as metaphysically, but he wants to pursue it in a kind of scattered way so that the laws in in biology and chemistry don't have to hold their, their feet aren't held to the fire in the, in the same way that I want to hold the, the laws of the, the, to the fire in, in the laws, their laws to the laws of physics and ultimately well, statistical mechanics and physics. Uh, that needs unpacking, but I'm not going to do it right now. Okay. So the the idea of the metaphysics of laws was a subject that was laid mostly undiscussed. Hearst uh, brings it up a little bit uh, and some other people, but through the reign of positivism, it just wasn't a polite question to ask what in the universe corresponds to laws. Mood was more sort of instrumentalist or positivist or I don't know what. Okay. So it wasn't until the 1970s that people started really thinking about what laws might be. David Armstrong had this interesting view, which is a little bit like Tim Maudlin's view. Maudlin's is a more sophisticated, up-to-date view, but Armstrong had the view that what there are in reality, in metaphysics, are these universals, and some of them are connected by a relation that he called contingent necessitation. See if you can get that one down your throat. Contingent necessitation. necessitation. <laughs> um, Seems contradictory. Okay. But, you know, he, of course, developed this. It wasn't contradictory. It was probably bloody problematic, but it wasn't a contradiction. Okay. So David Armstrong was a big figure those days. And he and David and Lewis were much in interaction. So Lewis had another idea. Lewis went back to an older idea that he found in Mill and Ramsey, and they sort of attributed to David Hume, because David Hume wanted to get rid of necessary connections. At least that's the old Hume. There's a new interpretation of Hume in which he says he never liked disliked necessary connections at all. He just he just disliked knowing anything about them. I'm not sure what the difference between those two things are, but okay. All right, so this is another view. So Lewis said, look, the trouble with the old way of being a Jungian was just to say laws are just regularities. But they're not any old regularities. Reichenbach had a famous example of all balls of gold, solid gold, are less than one mile in diameter. That may be true in our universe, right? But all balls 
of U-238 are less than one mile, or I don't know, one meter in diameter. That is a lawful, or, or, or it's very likely. I, I, I have no reason to be fine points about the physics here, right? Mm-hmm. You see the point to the example. It's been, by law, you, you'd get a reaction. You'd okay. I'm sure you can come up with situations like that too, but um, okay. So that was Reichenbach's example, but it's made, making the point: just being a true generalization doesn't make you a law. And of course, there's a question of laws. It's supposed to support counterfactuals. How does that work? And that's what I was interested in. Because they're very interested in what makes counterfactuals true or false. I knew that Lewis's account couldn't be right. The reason I knew Lewis's account couldn't be right goes back to something I was telling you earlier when I was explaining Lewis's account of counterfactuals to David Albert. He said to me, that can't be right because statistical mechanics shows it can't be right. And David Albert was completely right. And Adam Elgar published a paper some years later in which he basically demonstrated this, a very elegant, beautiful paper. And you know Adam Elgar? He's a philosopher yeah. Princeton, right? Okay. Great. Okay. So what are laws? So Lewis said, I know a better way to be human. Go global. Go global. You got a problem with your company? Go global. <laughs> so he he said, let's say this. Suppose there's a fundamental ontology and, and, and it's in a configuration and it's spread out through all, all of space and time. To keep matters simple, let's suppose it's just particles or particles, let's just particles and it's spread out through all of space and time. And let's suppose it's finite so we don't run into a certain problem about infinity. Um, then you might want to describe this configuration it might be very, very complicated. You might have to say this a, a particle here at this time and another particle there at that time, another particle there, that another. You go on and on and on. It takes a very long time to do it, maybe it, forever. Okay. Uh, uh, but maybe we live in a universe which can be described fairly simply. It, you might have a simple description which gives a lot of information about it, maybe not everything, but a lot, in a very simple form. For example, you might just say this. Here's a dynamical law, which will say how the state of the universe evolves given its configuration, where the particles are at one time and what their velocities are at one time, how it will evolve at other times. The law is F equals MA. And of course, there are Fermi fancier Hamiltonian and, and and fancier versions of this and that, but that would be a simple way. Now, you need some other laws because you need some F laws. So you might add them. Might be like the gravitational law or charge law. Who knows what other laws? But you might only have a small package of about six F laws, one dynamical law, and you tell a lot about your universe. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, what you've described is the actual universe. You haven't added anything to the universe. You haven't added anything primitive outside of the universe. You've just said what a law is, is something that is and follows, is entailed by 
the best, the optimal description of your universe. The optimal description is the one that best combines simplicity and informativeness and some other virtues that physicists like over the whole history of the, in describing the history of the whole uh, configuration. That makes some sense? Mm-hmm. This is Lewis's suggestion. He never wrote a paper about it. He mentions it in about three or four papers. Uh, the person who picked up on this idea, as far as I know, I might be wrong about this. I don't know anybody who really picked up on it before me. I'm sure there are other people who did or said some things about it, but I wrote a paper about this uh, about a long, almost 30 years ago, about 30 years ago. And I realized this is something really interesting because you could also show how it fits together with Lewis's theory of counterfactuals in a very cool way so that you get a theory in which there are laws which make no more demands on ontology than the actual world, which together with his theory of counterfactuals, which I'm just going to tell you what we can talk about later, also make no more demands of ontology in the actual world, despite what you may have ever heard about what's going on in other possible worlds. That may require a separate little discussion. Mm -hmm. It's a very widespread misunderstanding. Yeah, huge. So I'm I'm surprised to hear that from you. Good. Okay. Um, And uh, and you get something great, because you get something like an account of what laws might be, such that they do the things that laws are supposed to do. They support counterfactuals. They may even support explanations. They may want to count the explanation you want to give, and so on. There are a lot of issues and problems with this account that people immediately brought up. One of the people who brought this up, I should put a plug in for him in our discussion, because I'm curious whether you're going to do a podcast with him, happens to be a second cousin of mine. That's Mark Lang. Yeah, I, I do know him. At um, Is he at North Carolina? Yeah. So we have some sort of genetic abnormality in common, but I'm not sure what it is. But he has very different views about the nature of laws than I do. Okay, uh, But he also pursues a very important objection against the Lewis-Yumian view, and that is that it can't support explanations. Laws like that can't really underlie explanations. Tim Morland also makes this objection in a very incisive way, and I've tried to answer it in a number of papers and it's gone back and forth and I think in the end I win but I'm not sure other people you know it's philosophy so I I don't know what to say everybody wins or everybody loses but it's (laughs) philosophy now how does probability come into this story well probability is a real mystery on anybody's view what does Maudlin think probability is he thinks probability is primitive like he thinks laws or he wants to get rid of it in entirely in favor of something he calls typicality. We could come back if you're interested in that, or you, me, me and him could I debate that, actually, we do. Or, or, or many many people are, co- are competent to talk about it. It's a hot topic right now. Um, uh, so that's one approach. Uh, Popper had an idea of something like this. He thought of probabilities as being primitive propensities. He didn't have it in the comprehensive way that Maudlin wants to do to connect it with fundamental physics. And Popper had a complete misunderstanding of quantum mechanics. But without going down the old Popper lane, uh, uh, well, I won't say anything more about that. 
um, uh, you could be a frequentist. Well, there's an actual frequency view, but Alan Hayek, who I wanted to talk about earlier, maybe anyway, uh, he he's the, the the top person in probability nowadays, and he wrote a paper called 15 Things Wrong with uh, uh, Actual Frequency Views. You could have a hypothetical frequency view. I forget whether he or somebody else wrote a paper called 15 Things Wrong with uh, Hypothetical Frequency Views. And I know that Anthony Eagle wrote a paper called 15 Things Wrong with Propensity Views because I just read it the other day. There happened to just be 15 things wrong with everything. No, they just ran out of journal space. <laughs> okay. So what the bleep is probability? You could see why DeFinetti and maybe Savage, who Supis was a great proponent of, wanted to just give up and say, all there is is subjective probability. Maybe we can make do with just subjective probability. And DeFinetti and Savage did go a long distance by showing how, if you had degrees of belief of a certain sort, it was as if you believed there were objective probabilities when there really aren't. So they, they went a long way, but it, it doesn't go all the way. Again, it's a big, long, separate discussion. Um, good. So uh, what's there left? Lewis had a great idea. He just, in my view, mentions it. He doesn't develop it. The way he does develop it, he doesn't realize what a gold mine he has. And furthermore, he thinks that it's a big problem it doesn't have. Here's his idea. Laws for Lewis are just summaries. They're A's to systematization. They systematize what's there. They systematize. Systematization is the name of the game. Laws systematize. What probability is, is something we introduce into our language in order to help us systematize. Let me give you an example. Take a long sequence of heads and tails. It's not meant to be a real life example because the world isn't just heads and tails. But suppose the world consists of H, H, T, 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 H, T, T, H, T, 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 H, T, 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 in some crazy looking way on a few thousand things. Somebody might look at that and somebody, you might ask someone, tell me what's in that sequence. You might say, well, first there's an H, and then there's an H, then there's a T, then you say, no, no, I'm getting tired. Yeah, tell me in a simple way. Tell me a lot about that. Then you might say, well, about half of them are H's and half of them are T's. And so you say, well, that's a bit better, but you're not telling me anything much about what to find in 10 of them, are you? You're just talking about the whole bunch of them. And then somebody says, well, look, if I introduce this function, a probability function, it has a nice mathematics that's been lying around. If I introduce it as an aid to systematization, I could say that the probability of an H is a half and the probability of a T is a half, and the individual outcomes are independent. That means that the probability of one outcome given any other outcome is the same as the probability of the one outcome. Right. Good. Okay. So... Uh, you do that, now you've got a tremendous amount of information about that sequence. You know that if it were to be flipped many, many times, you know that you will get heads just about half of the time. 
Now, just about is not a technical notion. So the best you can really do, and this is really a, still a top, top important point that people in probability theory need to get clear about, is the best you can prove is that's very likely. You'll get about half heads and half tails if you flip it 100 times. You could even prove a, a famous theorem as proved by Bernoulli a long time ago uh, that the there's what's called probabilistic convergence on the probability of the individual case. Now you've introduced this thing into your language. You come, can come up with a simple, very simple system, and you've given a lot of information about it. But you need some way to go from the probability claims it makes to the actual world. Because really, all there is is in your ontology are H's and T's. Right. So how can you do that? Well, the the, the great uh, developers of probability theory realized that there was this problem. Uh, and so they introduced a, another principle. Uh, there was an economist, a French economist and mathematician called Cournot, who introduced something he called Cournot's principle. Cournot's principle says that when the probability of something gets very, very close to one, just consider it as though it's going to happen. Certain, he says. Or if it gets close to zero, don't worry about it. Now, this may be as good advice, but you know it can't be right because of lotteries, right? Because you buy into a lottery, you know none of the particular tickets are going to happen. So you got to fix it up. I'm not sure that anybody has done that yet. There's another idea, and David Lewis introduced it. He didn't quite introduce it this way, but this is how I think about it. He called it the principal principle. I'm sure you've heard of it. The principal principle. Yeah. Hmm. That's what he called it. It says this. I don't think he introduced it in quite the right way, but he introduced it like this. He said, your degree of belief in a, a statement, let's say you get heads, given that the chance, the objective chance of getting heads is a half, and given that the other things you know aren't relevant, should be equal to a half. So that connects your degrees of belief in a real-world event, getting a heads, with a chance statement, which is really, in Lewis's account, a, a, a summary of, of what's going on in the universe. In other accounts, it's other things. Now, this principle principle is supposed to be good for all different accounts of the metaphysics of probability. But I think Lewis's account is especially poised to make sense of it. Not everybody agrees with me. Uh, this is a, a, an ongoing research issue right now. Um, uh, Lewis, though, saw immediately there was a problem squaring his principal principle with his Jungian account of probability and laws. They're inconsistent, he thought. Now, in fact, they're a lot literally inconsistent. To get an inconsistency, you got to add something. But I don't go into the technical details. But but the inconsistency that he noticed, something like that is there. And so you could need to fix it up. So I think uh, a couple of people fixed it up. I think one of them is someone else you've interviewed, Ned Hall. I haven't talked to Ned Hall. Okay. Well, I'd he fixed to. it. Yeah, he's great. He's He fixed it up. He Okay. So you can fix it up. It's not a big thing. And I knew as soon as I saw it that it's not a problem. In fact, you could ignore it. Okay. But, you know, 
that's just because I wasn't smart enough to see all the problems probably. But 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 you can get rid of it. You can get rid of this problem. Ned showed how to do it. There are other ways to do it. Janan Ismail, another person you should speak with. I'm sorry to be promoting all my friends, but that's what they are. Do <laughs> uh, you see what we've just done? Do you see what we've just, if what I'm saying is right, we just now found a way to how to think about laws and probabilities of the whole universe for fundamental theories. We can do some work to extend it to special science theory, uh, um, theories and, and just weather reports. That's where the mentaculous will come in. We'll come back to that in one second. Weather reports. But we've done a, a tremendous amount. If this is right. I feel very enthusiastic and excited about this. And I think for me personally, I don't want to toot my own horn really. Uh, but if, if it is, if I really found something, it's only because I was at the right place at the right time, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I saw what was going on in these other people, Lewis, David Albert, and, um, and, and other, the other people we've talked about. Okay, so, great. Okay, let's back to the mentaculus. Mm -hmm. The mentaculus then will have as its laws the fundamental dynamical laws. Let's take Newtonian mechanics so we have a model in mind, even though we know it's not right. Mm -hmm. It says that the fundamental laws are just given, as I told before, just by a few axioms, one dynamical axiom and a bunch of uh, uh, force laws. Maybe as a law about what to do with future, about how to f about future forces, that's the, uh, the third Newton law. Um, uh, then we got to add to it the statement that the entropy of the universe was very, very small at one time. I didn't explain what that meant then, so I will now. Sure. Entropy is a property or a quantity that was introduced in statistical mechanics uh, earlier than Boltzmann, but Boltzmann found an equivalent of it in his approach to statistical mechanics in terms of the microphysics. And it's a measure of how large the set of microphysical configurations there are that satisfy a macrophysical configuration. So it's always the entropy of a macroscopic state or proposition. And it's the size of the set of micro states that are consistent or realize that macroscopic state. Now, when I say size, I got to be careful because we're speaking infinities because there are infinitely many of both of those. Mm -hmm. So we got to have a measure. And that's where the probability, one of the places the probability comes in because it also gives us our measure. That's how Boltzmann introduced. He just introduces a measure uh, over the, uh, the set of microstates. And it's the simplest measure you could think of. So whatever is going to play the role of the uniform measure in the particular spaces you're talking about, okay? You might have to make changes in other theories, but that's, in Newtonian mechanics, that's what it is. Then we're going to interpret that as a probability measure. Well, what's the meaning of probability? Well, it's the one I told you that's given out of Lewis's metaphysics of probability. Now, put all that together, we have this kind of practice, a package 
a physical theory of the micro and macro physical of the world, together with a philosophical account or philosophical interpretation of the main ingredients of that theory. We're told what laws are and what probability is. Okay, now, if that's not enough to take your breath away, you're about to hear about fire in the equations. <laughs> Very quickly. Uh, there's one thing about Lewis's account that I didn't like. He has a sort of pre-built-in ontology that he, had, he calls perfectly natural properties at a, a built-in space-time, which I'm not sure what it is, but he always works with classical Newtonian absolute space-time, but maybe he could adopt his account of fancier views. Okay. But I would like to get rid of that. And first, I think, how could you get rid of that? Because <laughs> what, we, what are you going to systematize then? Okay. But I saw that David Albert's approach gave me a thing to do. What we really want to systematize is the macroscopic world. That's what we want to systematize because that's the where macroscopic. we start. Macroscopic. Okay. Okay. Described in our ordinary macroscopic languages. But let's stick with thermodynamic language first, where we give the thermodynamic state of things in small regions of space-time. If we can systematize all that, that's really great. But in the course of systematizing that, we just can't systematize it as it stands. We're going to have to introduce further ontology, as physics has to do, in order to come up with a good systematization of that like particles that make up the macroscopic states, and maybe further ontology, like quantum mechanical wave functions and other things to take you on a tour through the details would be not something we could do now. But the idea is what the package deal account, which is what my Metaculous book is about, it replaces Lewis' best systems account mm -hmm. with what I call the package deal account of laws. What it is, it says, what we want to systematize is the macroscopic world. It's basically built on the positions of things. That's where physics starts anyway, where things are located right. and how they move around in space and time. That's what Democritus thought. That's what Lucretius thought. That's what Descartes thought. That's what Newton thought. That's what Boltzmann thought. That's what Maxwell thought. In order to do that, Maxwell had to introduce fields as well. Maybe we need fields too in this story. Okay? But we got to start the positions of things, and it ultimately always comes back to the positions of things. Um, John Bell, the other great figure in the history of quantum mechanics, other than the, the giants, Einstein, uh, I guess Bohr, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, Aharonov, is, is Bell. Okay, and there are others too, Dirac and so on, but there are others, but um, what Bell emphasized is what we really care about is the positions, where things are. Ultimately, it all comes down to the positions of pointers or particles or cats. She's changing her position. Yeah, I can't forget them. Okay. okay. So what we want is to systematize the positions of things that are accessible to us and systematize together with them everything else we have to introduce along the way. And it turns out that following out that program, leads one to put into this mix a space-time framework and laws. And on top of that, it's Humean because it emphasizes systematization, but it's not Humean because there's no prohibition in to there being necessary connections between fundamental 
properties in the world. And in fact, Lewis himself had necessary connections because even he thought that nothing, no particle could both have negative and positive charge at the same time. So he thought they were ruled out, but he, he, he thought they were ruled out at the same place. But you can even have them at different places because there's nothing so special really about space time. And in some contemporary theories in physics, you get rid of space and time. You replace them by spin networks and, and all sorts of other stuff. And uh, and and so, so this package deal account is a much more general framework. It emphasizes the systematizing role of laws and probabilities and gets it says how the ontology and uh, laws and probability are connected because they have to come in together as a package deal. That's the idea. Yeah, I, I, can I say one more thing? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. I think anybody listening to me and listening to this podcast, as many of my friends have said, their initial remark is, you must be out of your bleeping mind. And maybe they don't use such polite language. You or, or me or who? Me. Maybe okay. you for interviewing me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Now I want to tell you, because we didn't get to the story about where the word mentaculus comes from. Okay. The mentaculus comes from maybe the best move I ever made in, in philosophy. And that was to go see a movie by the Cone brothers called A Serious Man. Have you seen it? Yes. You might remember that in it, there's a, a the main character is a physicist who's, who's going sort of crazy. He has a brother who is crazy and never gets out of his pajamas, clearly is out of his mind. And there's a little scene. His brother doesn't have a major role, but his brother is, is scribbling in a book. And someone asks his brother, what are you doing? And he says, I'm composing the mentaculus. Then the person asks him, what is that? He says, it's a probability map of the universe. <laughs> well, what do I think David Albert and I have come up with here? It's something like a probability map of the universe. Although only on some days do I think I'm out of my mind. I'm not saying about what other people think. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 am ser I am serious about it. Um, and uh, the last thing, and this might inspire other people to get into philosophy, is through it, David Albert and I have gotten to know Ethan Cohn pretty well, so we meet, meet him for lunch pretty regularly now. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if I have anything else to say. Okay. Well, I mean, I had really wanted to get into causation, free will, determinism, scientific realism, laws in the special sciences, how all of this relates to fire and the equations and the, the mentaculous. So I guess we will have to do another round at some point. Yeah. I'm sorry we didn't talk about free will. And the thing that I alluded to much earlier in our discussion was this problem about reference. Right. Psychosemantics. Right. And I now think that there might be a way to make an interesting connection between statistical mechanics and reference. Fred Dresky said, thought something like this, but not in a way I want to do it a long, long time ago. He was another one, one of the important figures in thinking about reference. Mm -hmm. uh, something called Wisconsin semantics, so, you know, that I know 1970s or 80s or something like that. Mm. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Barry. Okay. I don't know who to thank. You th I should thank you for listening to me. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, Please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And 
Also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not <laughs> joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.